Last week, we finished a study in the book of 2 Peter. I don't remember how long it took, but it took a little while. Um, we, we finished 2 Peter, which means today we are beginning a new book study, um, not new to our Bibles, thankfully, um, but new to our studies here on Sunday mornings. And that happens to be a study through the book of Ephesians. Now, as most of us know, at the beginning of each book study, it's good to just take a little bit of time to try to understand the background. We want to take some time to understand the context because what this does is that when we understand the history and the background and the context of a book, what that helps us with is it helps us to rightly understand and rightly interpret what is being said. Now, it also help, it's also helpful at the beginning of a study to try to get a, an, an overall feel to the, the structure of a book, just so that we can kind of understand the big picture, just so that we can understand what to expect as we move forward through the study. Now, that is exactly what we are planning to do today. Um, the, the message title today is Introducing Ephesians. We're only going to be looking at the first two verses. Um, only covering verses one and two of chapter one, and as we do so, this is like an introductory, you know, an introductory study. We're trying to get our head around the context, the big picture of the book, which is hopefully going to line us up well for the weeks and the months to come. In saying this, we can break today's study into three main parts. So what we're going to do, firstly, in verse one, we are going to see the greeter. So we'll see in verse one. Secondly, also in verse one, the greeted. And then thirdly, in verse 2, the greeting. There we go. Nice and easy. The greeter, the greeted, and the greeting. So let's give our attention to God's word where we see um, the first half of verse 1 where we are introduced to the greeter. And so let's give our attention to verse 1 where the letter begins in verse 1 with the following words. If you notice it in in your Bibles there, it says, Paul, an apostle... Of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now let's just stop there for a moment. What we see here in this very first part of the verse one is we see the identity of the greeter. And there's no guesswork that's needed, there's no theological gymnastics or interpretive challenges here, simply because what we see in this very first verse is that the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that he is the author of this letter. And so, of course, the question that we must ask in our mind when we come to something like this is, well, what do we know about him? What do we know about the author? What do we know about the Apostle Paul, the one who is claiming authorship of this particular letter? Well, what we know when we look to Scripture, we know that the Apostle Paul had previously been a devout and a very committed and a very zealous Jewish leader. He was known as a Pharisee. And in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Paul explains some of the background of what this actually entailed. He says of himself that he was circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which comes in the law, blameless. And so what is he saying here? Well, in other words, what he's telling us is that his life before becoming a Christian, from a purely human point of view, it looked as though Paul had it all together. It looked like he was the full package. From a, from a Jewish point of view, everything in Paul's life had been done by the book, and if anything, the Apostle Paul was a perfect role model that people should look to in order to look to see what a Jew should really look like. 
So he was so committed to, to, to Judaism that when Christianity came on the scene, when Christians came on the scene, what did Paul do? He was such a com- committed Jew that he took it upon himself to persecute the Christians immensely. In Acts chapter 7, Paul was the one who oversaw the murder of the very first Christian martyr. His name is Stephen. He oversaw that. He approved of that. In Acts chapter 8, it tells us that Paul was the one who made havoc within the church. He was going from house to house, dragging off men and women, throwing them into prison because of their faith in Christ. However, it was Paul, when we get to Acts chapter 9, when he was on his way to persecute the Christians in Damascus, Paul in Acts chapter 9 had a life-changing experience, a life-changing experience when he had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what he did is that he came to realize that all of his past efforts, regardless of how good they were or bad, it didn't really matter, regardless of his past efforts of him trying to live a good life, well, he came to realize that did not make up for all of the sin which he had previously committed. He came to realize when he encountered Jesus that according to God's standard, all of the good that one does does not make up for the bad. He came to realize that God must do what a good judge must do when it comes to sin. He must punish sin. And so it was on that Damascus road that Paul gave up trying to get right with God, trying to be the model person, you know, like all the other Jews were trying to be based upon his own efforts. But instead, Paul on that Damascus road on that day, he placed his trust in the finished work of Jesus dying in his place upon the cross and he surrendered his life to him. And from that point forward, everything changed for Paul. His life was not the same. It was not just raise your hand, say a prayer, continue on with life as normal. That is not the, the, the experience for the Apostle Paul. That is not the experience for anyone, any genuine Christian. But instead, everything for Paul changed. After all, it's kind of hard to argue against something that you've come to realize is undeniably true. What we saw in the life of Paul is that he went from being a persecutor to a preacher. A persecutor to preacher. However, according to Galatians chapter 1, Paul was not immediately called into Christian ministry. Galatians 1 doesn't say he immediately started serving the Lord as an apostle, but instead, according to Galatians chapter 1, he spent 14 years away from Jerusalem, away from the other apostles. He spent 14 years in in places such as Arabia, places such as Syria and Cilicia, and it was during that time that the Apostle Paul, he received direct revelations from God, direct revelations hearing directly from God concerning the gospel and also concerning God's plan for Paul to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. And sure enough, when Paul had returned to Jerusalem, as he says in Galatians chapter 1, after 14 years, well, what he did is that he thought, you know what, I'm going to comp- compare my theology here. Here I have been in Arabia and Cilicia and, 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 um, and Syria, and I've heard this, this, I've received direct re- revelation from God. I'm going to compare my theology with all the other apostles that were in Jerusalem at that time. And what became apparent when he compared theology is that there was no contradiction. There was complete consistency with what God had revealed to Paul compared to what God had revealed to the other apostles. 
And it was from that point that Scripture begins to record for us the gospel ministry of Paul. I don't know. I think that's a wee bit of a reminder for us that although we may have a desire to serve God to a greater degree, although we may have a desire to serve God in some capacity, one way or another, I think it's a little reminder to us that there's always going to be a time of preparation. There's always going to be a time of preparation for all that God has called us to do. And this is what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. For Paul, it was a period of 14 years of preparation before he used him in the way in which he used him. For Moses, what was, what was it for Moses? For Moses, it was a period of 40 years before he used him in tremendous ways, nation-shaping ways. But regardless of the duration of that preparation, it's important for us to remember to not despise the days of little things. If we can be faithful and show ourselves to be faithful with little, well then what that demonstrates is that we can also be trusted to be faithful with much. And so we must always think of that kind of way. But now notice how else Paul describes himself here. Notice in verse 1 he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what is an apostle? Well, uh, an apostle is an office of leadership within the early church. The office of an apostle was given for the purpose of establishing the church and to establish the church through direct revelation from God that would be given to certain men from the Holy Spirit. The ministry of an apostle, it's recorded for us, um, uh, is... The, it's, it's recorded for us in Scripture, but the ministry of the apostles, um, which we now have within our Scriptures, within new, the, the New Testament, that is the foundation of the church. The ministries of the apostles, hearing that direct revelation from God, now given to us in the New Testament, that is the foundation for the church. That is what the church is to be built upon, is to be built upon the revelation given by God to the apostles now for us. The apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians of all places, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. He says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Now listen to the foundation. He says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so what is happening? We are being built into a household of God. What is the foundation of that structure, spiritually speaking? It is the doctrine of the apostles and the prophets. Now, according to Scripture, there are only 14, and there have only ever been 14 legitimate apostles who have ever existed. And by the way, that will only ever be the case going forward as well. There are only 14 legitimate apostles apostles. And I say the word legitimate and highlight that word because you'll find apostles all over the place today. They're not, they're not legitimate. They're fakes. They're frauds. They're self-appointed. According to Scripture, only 14. Firstly, they're the, the 12 uh, disciples, those who walked very closely with Jesus. And then following that, we know that Judas was removed from that number. Then according to Acts chapter 1, a, a man by the name of Matthias was appointed as an apostle. And then following on from that, we know that the Apostle Paul, Paul was appointed as an apostle as well. Now, how does one become an apostle? Well, there was a couple of qualifications for that. And one of the qualifications to become an apostle, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 22, one of the necessary qualifications for a person to be considered for the office of an apostle 
is that they had to have seen the risen Jesus from the dead. And this is what makes Acts chapter 9 such a critical, important part of the picture because in Acts chapter 9, that is where where Paul witnessed the resurrected Jesus. And when he witnessed him, it, it was then a prerequisite for him to become an apostle. On the other hand, you have people today who try to claim that they are apostles in the same way that they were apostles in the New Testament times. However, unless they have personally seen the risen Christ with their own eyes in bodily form, and by the way, I'm not talking just about an impression on the heart. I'm not talking about a a strong thought. I'm not talking about a, a vision or a dream. But unless that person has seen the resurrected Christ in bodily form with their own eyes, they simply do not meet the qualifications of one who would be considered to be an apostle according to Scripture. As for Paul, he introduces himself in verse 1 as what? An apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, why would he introduce himself this way? Is he just showing off? Hey, I'm an apostle. Look at me. Is he just showing off? Not at all. He introduces himself in this way in such a way that will enhance his authority, that would enhance respect to those who would be reading this letter. After all, Paul was, knew that he was not just merely writing as a Christian, not just one brother to another. You know, he's not just writing as a, merely as a church leader of a local church, such as a, a pastor or, or an elder. Paul knows that he was writing as one who had been given the specific role to establish the church in a foundational way through direct revelation that he had received directly from God, as did the other apostles. Yet at the same time, Paul knew that his role as an apostle, not his own idea, not something that he came up with, but he knew that his role as an apostle was directly from God. Notice how he puts it there in the rest of verse 1 there. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and what does it say there? By the, what? By the will of God. In other words, Paul knew that his appointment as an apostle was from God himself. In his introduction to the letter of the the Galatians, when he writes Galatians, his introduction makes it very, very clear that, hey, this whole idea about me being an apostle, me being part of establishing the church, this is not just my idea. And this is what he says according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle, and then this is what he says, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. What Paul is saying here is that he just didn't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think it would be a pretty cool idea to become an apostle. I fancy being an apostle one day, and so that's what I'm going to set out to be. I want to be an apostle. It didn't come from me, he says. Nor did it come from anyone else. In other words, Paul did not go to apostle school. I've come here to study to be an apostle, and when I'm done, then you can print out a little certificate that shows me to be a qualified apostle. Now I'm an apostle. I'm a qualified apostle. No, it didn't happen that way either. It didn't come from man. But instead, Paul makes it very clear that becoming an apostle was not his idea. It was not the idea of any other person. Instead, the reason that he was an apostle was because of the will of God. It was not his own will. It was God's will. It's not something that he initiated. It was something that God initiated in his life. God called and he equipped Paul to be a gift to the church through which God, he could fulfill the ministry that God had for him. 
And in a similar way, don't you think there should be somewhat of a sense that we want to have that sense, the same sense as what the Apostle Paul has? Shouldn't this be the way that we think about our role within the body of Christ, whatever it might be? I am a door greeter by the will of God. I am a worship leader by the will of God. I am a PowerPoint operator. I'm a set-up person. I'm an evangelist. I'm a pastor. I'm a missionary. I'm a deacon. I'm a church planter. I'm whatever it might be, by the will of God. We should be seeking to have some sense that however we may be serving, whatever gift we are to the body, whatever we may be pursuing, that we are not just pursuing our own idea, but we're taking a step back and we're going, how might God use me? How has God purposed me specifically to be able to build up what is my part within the body of Christ? What part does he want me to play? Instead, we should be seeking to do whatever it is that we do by the will of God. Well, moving on from the greeter, verse 1, we come secondly to the greeted also in verse 1. We're not moving too quickly today, are we? Still in verse 1. So if you give your attention there, Paul continues after, after introducing himself. He says also in verse 1, to, so we've got the from to now the to, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So what we see here is what? What we see here is that Paul addresses this letter to the Christians in a place called Ephesus. Now, when we think about Ephesus, when we think about the Christians in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, it's important that we don't think of like a building that may seat 200 to, you know, 300 people in it. It's, it's, it's important that we don't think of it in that kind of way. But instead, Paul is addressing Christians in a city which had about a population of about a quarter of a million, about 250,000, and most of those Christians met in houses. There were dozens of house churches around this larger city known as Ephesus. In other words, this letter was intended for perhaps dozens of little houses throughout Ephesus in nearby villages, perhaps in near, nearby towns as well. Now, by referring to them as saints, you know, he's not talking about, hey, you've all got your own stained glass window of a picture of your portrait of yourself. He's not, he's not talking about it like that. But instead, Paul is reminding them that as Christians, they are holy. As Christians, they are holy in the, sen in the sense of being set apart, set apart to God, chosen by God, and chosen for God as God's new covenant people. You are saints. You are different. You are the called out ones. And so at this point, it's probably worth us asking the question, well, what's the relationship? What's the relationship between the greeter and the greeted? What is the relationship between Paul and the believers who were in Ephesus? After all, we consider it to be un very unusual for someone to write a letter to someone who they didn't know or had no connection with. That'd be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Have you ever tried that before? Just writing a letter to someone that you had no idea who it was. And it would be very weird for a person to receive a letter from someone who they didn't even know who they were, no interaction with, no connection with. Imagine that, opening up the mailbox and cracking open a letter, and there you have quite a, a personal, intimate letter from someone you had no idea who it actually was. That would be highly unusual as well. Well, as we'd expect, there was already an existing relationship between Paul and the believers in Ephesus at the time that this letter was written. 
So how did this relationship begin? Well, you know, with, as with any relationship, it did have a beginning. We have to, to, in order to think about how this relationship actually came together, we have to take our thoughts back to Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, Paul was on his second missionary journey, and after spending about a year and a half ministering, serving, teaching in a place called Corinth, well, <clears throat> he then moves on. He takes two partners in ministry with him, Priscilla and Aquila, and he goes to Ephesus. And so picking up in Acts chapter 18, verse uh, 19, we read what happened when Paul first arrived in Ephesus. It says that he came to Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And so, as far as we can tell from this very first encounter, Paul probably only spent maybe a day, a two, maybe three days in Ephesus. And when he was there, his primary focus on, at that time was to try to reach the Jewish population with the gospel. That was his focus. He was there for a short period of time. He went to the synagogues. He went to the Jewish places of meeting with the gospel. But as we see, Paul was also itching to get back to his own home church. It wasn't that he just didn't like their company. He had been on the road or he'd been traveling for about two years at that point on a second missionary journey, and he was itching to get back to his home church in Antioch, which is what he eventually did. However, when he got back to his home church in Antioch, it wasn't too long before he started to get itchy feet or maybe a stirring of the spirit, and he wanted to go back out again on a third missionary journey. And on this third missionary journey, he comes to Ephesus again. Remember the first time, it's only for a very short period of time. They wanted him to stay. He couldn't stay. He wanted to get back to his home church. Third missionary journey, he comes, and this time, it's not just for a couple of days, this time he spends over two years establishing a church in this place called Ephesus. And so let's look, read the account beginning in, in, in Acts chapter 19, picking up in verse 8. It says, and this is on his third missionary journey now, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but they spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them, withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus, and this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so there's a significant portion of Paul's ministry that was there teaching, preaching, grounding, evangelizing the people in Ephesus and the surrounding regions. Now, during that time, not only did Paul plant and establish a church in the church in Ephesus, but there was also a tremendous display of repentance in the lives of the people who he was coming to. In other words, when he was sharing the gospel, when he he was explaining the truth about Jesus, people who received him, their lives did not just continue the way that they had always been. But instead, there was dramatic change. There was a difference in the way in which they lived. And it talks about this in Acts chapter 19, picking up in verse 18. Listen to how dramatic it was. It says, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds 
Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, it was having a citywide effect, in other words. The gospel was being propagated through. The Spirit of God was touching hearts, changing lives, and so much so that it was having an enormous effect, enormous effect on the local businesses within Ephesus. It was kind of like, you know, their version of a COVID-19, a bit of a lockdown was taking place. For instance, in Acts chapter 19, it talks about the people there, those who made a living out of making idols. Imagine that as your job. So what do you do for a line of work? I make idols. I sell them to people. I sell them to the vulnerable. I sell them to those who like to worship, you know, these false gods. There were those who made big business out of making idols. Ephesus was very big in idolatry. They had temples. They had uh, the temple prostitutes. There was a lot, very, very religious. But the problem is that their religion was focused to false gods. It wasn't to the true God. And so because there were those in Ephesus who were making a living out of making these false gods, they started to lose big money because these new converts who were coming to Christ, they were no longer doing business with them. They were no longer buying what it is that they had to offer in the way in which they once did. And what this did is that it caused these manufacturers of the idols within Ephesus, within this very place, it caused them to become incredibly upset. And that's probably a wee bit of an an understatement because what these manufacturers did of these idols is that they caused an uproar within the city so large that it included the whole city coming together, marching, yelling. It says in the account there, some didn't even know what they were yelling about, but there they were where there was confusion. And so you've got to think about a quarter of a million people, all kind of, the majority of them all running and rushing and, and yelling and protesting and, and all the rest of it. And what this did is that it caused for Paul to leave Ephesus. He left Ephesus for several months. He, he went away. He continued on. He realized, man, the gospel has caused an uproar in the city, yet a church is established. There are, there are people being converted. The word of God is going forth. And so he leaves Ephesus now on his third missionary journey. He leaves for several months. But then on his way back to Jerusalem, he comes through Ephesus again. And what he does is that he stops off on a shoreline. He's taking a boat. He stops off on a shoreline and he calls just for the elders of the church in Ephesus. So not calling for everyone in Ephesus. He's on his way home. There's a big uproar the last time he was there. He's coming through. He's on the shoreline of a, of a beach. He says, come, hang out. Let's hang out down the beach. He, he, he tells the boys, the elders, come on, come on. And we're going to have a bit of a chat. I, wanna, I have some things I want to share with you. And what he does is that Paul knows this is going to be the last time I see these church leaders these church elders for a long period of time. And there are some things that were weighing very, very heavily on Paul's heart. He had left them for several months and now he was on his way back and he had concerns for what was going to take place and he had concerns for the people who were there. So he calls out the leaders. There were some things weighing very, very heavily on his heart and we're just going to read that dialogue. We're going to read what it is that Paul says to the Ephesian elders when he calls them out on the beach on that particular day. And, and, and I, I want us to notice that, notice the way that he speaks to them. No, notice the way, because remember, what are we doing here? We're, we're trying to make the connection. You know, what was Paul's relationship 
to the, to the Christians in Ephesus. That's, the, that's what we're trying to establish here. But as we read through what it is that he communicates to the church elders, I want us to kind of see how much care he had for them, how much concern he had for them, yeah, how, how, much of a, how much of a faithful gospel ministry he had had toward them. And so we're going to pick up now in, in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. And this is where we see a Paul now talking to these Ephesian elders on the beach. He says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which had happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 22, he says, and see, he continues on, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of, of the grace of God. And he says in verse 25, And indeed now I, now I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. And therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And then verse 30, he says, also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend, to you, to, to commend you to God and to the, the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessity and those who were with me. And then he finishes by saying in verse 35, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And so we kind of, See, what are we seeing here? What are we seeing in this dialogue taking place between these people whom Paul had spent up to three years with? I think it's clear from this account in Acts that Paul had a rich 
background, a rich relationship with the Ephesians. They knew Paul and Paul knew them. They loved Paul and Paul loved them. And we know the story, if we read through the book of Acts recently. Paul eventually gets to Jerusalem. He's arrested due to the angry accusations of the the religious Jewish leaders. But he's kept protected from the Jews by the Roman officials. Paul eventually requests that his case be heard by Caesar himself. And so he's transported. He's transported from Jerusalem all the way over to Rome. And while Paul is there in Rome awaiting to hear his, his, his case to be heard before Caesar, we're told in Acts chapter 28 that Paul was under house arrest. He was guarded. He was not in a prison cell, but he was in a house, and he was unable to leave that house. And he was there with Roman guards, Roman soldiers, 24-7, to make sure that he did not leave that place. He was there for two years. And we see this in Acts 28, picking up in verse 30. It says, Then Paul dwelt two whole years in his own rented house, received all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, teaching the things that concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no one forbidding him. Now, here's the thing. When Paul was in under house arrest for that two-year period, it was during that time of house arrest that Paul did quite a number of things. He had people coming in and out. He had people you know, coming and wanting to hear about the gospel. According to Philippians, we know that Paul was preaching to the, the, the um, palace guard. He was preaching to the, the actual uh, Roman soldiers themselves. But one of those things, another one of those things that he did is that Paul happened to write a number of letters. And when he was there writing a number of letters, he wrote letters to the Philippians, he wrote them to the Colossians, he wrote a letter to Philemon, and you guessed it, as Paul is there, house arrest in Rome, he writes what? He writes this very letter that we're looking at here to the Ephesians. This is the context in which he was writing. He was under house arrest. Paul makes mention to his imprisonment three times in the book of Ephesians. Three times he mentions that he's in prison or he alludes to it. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of, the, of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. That's one reference. Another reference is in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. In the very last chapter, chapter 6 and verse 20, he puts it this way. He says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in I may speak, speak boldly as I ought to speak. And so it's from Rome, about AD 60 to AD 62, that is when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians while he was under house arrest, while he was being guarded 24-7 by Roman soldiers, while he was awaiting trial. This is when he chose to pen the letter that we are looking at today. We know that Paul gave a letter, the letter to a guy whose name was Tychicus. And he asked this guy Tychicus to actually deliver the letter to the Ephesians as well as to others. We know this because at the very end of the letter, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 to 22, it says, But that you may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know how our, know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. 
And so hopefully this gives us a, a bit of a better understanding, a better understanding of the relationship between Paul and the Ephesians. Hopefully it gives us a better understanding of the involvement or Paul's previous involvement before and leading up to the time that he actually wrote this letter that we are looking at today. They were not foreign to one another. Paul knew who it is that he was writing to. He knew those who would be receiving the letter would know him personally. Those are the ones on that beachfront that time. They were weeping. They were hugging. They were showing affection. They were, they were, they were, um, they were uh, devastated at the thought that they might not see each other for a period of time. This is the relationship between the greeter and the greeted. And so it's probably worth us just taking a moment now just to kind of ask the question why why did Paul decide to write this letter in the first place we know the relationship between him Um, we know what was taking place that he was under house arrest at that time but what was what caused him to write it in the first place well this is interesting because many Bible commentators they do not think that this letter of Ephesians was written exclusively for the Ephesians Probably the vast majority of Bible commentators don't, don't think that it is. Instead, they think that Paul writing Ephesians was intended, originally intended to be a, a letter that was circulated abroad, circulated widely, passed around, read in various towns and in various cities. And the reason that they think this is because, unlike Paul's other letters, there don't appear to be any kind of personal greetings in the letter uh, to the Ephesians. There doesn't seem to be any personal greetings, nor is there any specific um, issue that's raised that's very specific to the person's church themselves that relate to a specific local church. We just don't see that. Now, given that Paul's relationship with the Ephesians, given that he had spent up to three years with these people, one would expect, one would expect somewhat of a, a personal touch like he does in the letter to the Romans as he does in First and Second Corinthians, as he does in Galatians, Philippians, Colossians. You have people's names, specific names of people within the church that he is addressing, that he is talking to. There is more of a, a personal kind of touch to it. But we simply just don't see that in this letter to the Ephesians. This letter to the Ephesians, when we read it, it looks more of a generic letter. And what's interesting is that in some of the earliest, very earliest manuscripts, there's actually a little blank in verse 1 where the, the name is there. Instead of saying in verse 1, and, and, and about five of the ancient manuscripts, the vast majority do say Ephesians in them, but there's about five ancient manuscripts that don't have Ephesus in there. Instead of saying in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, there are five ancient manuscripts that say this, that simply say, to the saints who are blank, and the faithful in Christ Jesus. And so, although this letter, as we see here, is rightly addressed to the Ephesians, it's most likely that, again, what are we doing? We're asking, why did Paul write this in the first place? Well, it's more, most likely that Paul intended for this letter to be read to many believers and many other churches. And so, in other words, when Paul was penning this, it's likely that he intended for this letter to be for every believer at every time. Now, if this is the case, well, it's completely fitting to personalize it. To personalize it and to perhaps put our own name in there. To the saints who are in Redemption Church, 
and the faithful in Christ Jesus. It would be very fitting to personalize it. We can view this letter of Ephesians as being from God through the Apostle Paul to each and every one of us here today. And what's interesting is that Paul covers such a wide range of subjects in this letter. I mean, there's only six chapters in it. If you do a word count, there's only just over 3,000 words, which happens to be less words than this sermon that I'm preaching today, by the way. And only half of the words are of some of my larger sermons. In 3,000 words, he covers so many subjects. Such, so much is talked about. Now, the main reason for why Paul wrote this letter, really, is to make the believer understand something, to bring awareness to Christians. He wants, he, the reason he wrote this letter is to make Christians more aware of their position in Christ. He wants us to understand our position in Christ. He wants us to understand the, the abundance of heavenly privileges and heavenly blessings that we have as believers in Christ. And he hopes that by knowing their position, their privileged position in Christ, his hope is that this will motivate them to draw upon that, that the physical or the, the spiritual resource that's available to them in day-to-day life. That they wouldn't be living their lives as spiritual paupers, as spiritually poor, but instead they would recognize, look at all that I have available to me as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus Christ, and they would draw upon that goodness and that privilege and that blessing in their day-to-day life. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, this is what he says. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have been, you are his workmanship. You have been created. This is what God has for you. Draw upon that. And then he says, partway through the chapter there in Ephesians chapter four, verse one, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you then to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, by way of an outline, This is still falling under the broader category of the greeted, you know. By way of an outline of the book of Ephesians, it's actually divided very, very neatly. It's divided into two main parts, and equal parts, by the way. Firstly, chapters 1 to 3, that makes up the first section. And the second section is chapters 4 to 6, divided evenly, right there in the center. Paul He focuses on the position of the believer in chapters 1 to 3, whereas in chapters 4 to 6, he focuses on the practice of the believer. In the first half, chapters 1 to 3, Paul focuses on what Christ has done for us, but in the second half, he focuses on what we must do. In the first half, chapters 1 to 3, there are no imperatives. In other words, there there is no instructions that are given for what we must do as a believer. There's There's nothing in there that would say, as a Christian, you must do this or that. It is not there. But instead, that very first half of the book, chapters one to three, it focuses on our heavenly positions. It focuses on things such as adoption, redemption, inheritance, power, life, grace, the love of God, things of this nature. But then, when we get to the second half, chapters 
4 to 6, this includes a lot of instruction. In fact, there are 35 directives that are actually given in that second half. Nothing in the first half, but in that second half, based upon what Christ has done, he gives 35 directives as to, that speaks to the believer's responsibility about how they must conduct themselves as citizens of heaven, as those who have a heavenly calling. We can kind of put it like this. I'm trying to, try to, trying to summarize the best, the best that I can here. And the first half, chapters 1 to 3, you know, talks about what we must know, whereas in the second half, chapters 4 to 6, how we must live. The first half deals with the fruit. The, second half deal, uh, the first half deals with the root. The second half deals with the fruit. Uh, the first half deals with our spiritual wealth. The second half deals with our spiritual walk. The first half deals with Christian privilege. The second half deals with Christian conduct. The first half deals with the position of the believer. The second half deals with the practice of the believer. The first half deals with God, how God sees us in Christ, whereas the second half is how the world sees Christ in us. The first half deals with the privilege of the believer. The second half, the practice of the believer. The first half deals with doctrine, the second duty. First half, identity. Second half, responsibility. We get in the idea? I'll keep on going. First half, Christian blessings. Second half, Christian behavior. First half, belief. Second half, behavior. First half, uh, the heritage in Christ. Second half, our life in Christ. First half, the finished work of Christ. Second half, the faithful walk of the Christian or in Christ. First half, our heavenly standing, second half, our earthly walk, and I ran out of space. Do we get the idea? If you don't, come and talk to me at the shared lunch, and we'll kind of, we'll work through it further and further. I'm sure we can think more and more ways to try to understand the division that we have here in the book of Ephesians. And we see this division very, very clearly in Paul's thinking. He gets to chapter four, verse one of the letter. Again, that point, nothing to do with what we must do, but all about what Christ has done. And at that center point, bang, right in the middle, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I therefore, in other words, based upon all that Christ has done, based upon all of your privilege, based upon your, your spiritual position, based upon everything to do with Christ and the grace of Christ, based upon that, he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. There is a definite order to things in the life of the Christian. It must always be, what, what comes first must always be what Christ has, has done. And then based upon what Christ has done, then we can start to talk about what we must do. What we do as believers is always to be a response, a response to what Christ has already done for us. Which is a great reminder to us that yes, Christ has done it all. And we must remember that our standing before him is not based on a single action, a single thought, a single word that we would say, nothing to do with us. But based upon the fact that Christ has done it all, there are certain Christian responsibilities we have in light of that, which are a joy, which are a privilege, which are a blessing to respond to the God who loves us, the God who has done it all, and we respond with thanksgiving for what it is that he has done for us. Well, having looked at the greeter, the greeted, 
We finish now with the greeting, and we know it's shared lunch, so just to let you know, each point is not proportionate in terms of duration of how long it's going to take us. But let's give our attention now finally to the greeting in verse 2. Paul says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you familiar with any of the Apostle Paul's letters that he's written in the New Testament? Well, if you are, this greeting here will not be unfamiliar to you. He makes mention of it in every single letter that he wrote. He reminds us of the grace of God. He reminds us of peace with God. And we could easily break this down into at least a two-part sermon series. Uh, First of all, we'll talk about the grace of God. And we'll we'll talk about all the abundant blessing which he's given to us. And then part two, we could go and talk about the peace with God. Based upon that grace, we now have peace with the one who has provided the grace. Unpacking those rich theological truths. But we're not going to do that this time around. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to read the sentence as we've read it, simply to be taken as a greeting. Well, this now brings us to the end of our first study in the book of Ephesians. It brings it now to a close, close, and I do hope that it's been helpful for us as we prepare our hearts, as we prepare our minds, our thoughts, for all that God has purposed for the season and the weeks and the months to come. Let's close with a word of prayer. And as we do so, we just really want to ask God now to, to do that very thing. Ask him to prepare our hearts, ask him to prepare our thoughts, that we would receive, be ready to receive all that he has in the weeks and the months to come. So let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you specifically for this letter of Ephesians. We trust that you have graciously and providentially led the thoughts of the elders of our church to to choose a specific book, to study at this very specific time. And because we know that you have led us in this way, that you are working all things together, that you are sovereignly and providentially leading your church, well, we have somewhat of an expectancy when it comes to this letter. We have an expectancy that you'll lead us over this season. We have an expectancy that you'll direct our local church through the preaching and the teaching of your word. We have an expectancy that each week we will hear from you and that you'll meet each one of our spiritual needs as we go along. We know our needs in our church are vast, but we just trust that as we are faithful to go through your word, that you will meet each one of them as you will continue that sanctifying work in us, that sanctifying work by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask for hearts that are ready to hear. We ask for ears that are ready to listen, hearts that are ready to respond. As been been read out in today's readings, help us to not just be hearers of the word only, but also doers of the word. And help us to recognize the importance of gathering together in the way that we do, even though it's difficult on rainy days and with cold seasons and and all the rest of it. Help us to just recognize the importance of coming together like we do for our own good and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.